Hello, and welcome to Office Hours by Vela Wood. I'm Kevin. I'm Aaron. And we're starting a new series. So I probably got a lot of you tuning in, anxiously waiting for, for what's next. You know, we've done our other podcasts. We finish up the Venture Deal Review. The Venture Deals Review. I think a lot of people are here for our next chapter review of Venture Deals. It's over. It's over. We finished the book. It's done. Yeah, obviously they weren't paying attention, yeah. but they were. Well, they weren't reading the book, that's for sure. <laughs> so that one worked out really well. And it's also nice, Aaron, whenever we have clients asking us questions about raising capital, just say, you know what? We've done this. Listen to the podcast. Uh, maybe you've heard our Silicon Valley review or three things. We actually did some uh, three things with a founder and investor last November, December. We'll bring that back. But we're going to start a new series today. Now, this series is called Preparing for Funding. That's the working title, Preparing for Funding. Aaron, you want to explain what that means? Yeah, it means that when you have an idea and you want to turn that into a business and you just think, okay, well, I'm going to need to go out and raise money, more likely than not, you are not ready to do that yet. There are a lot of things that you have to do in order to prepare to take on money from outside investors. This is something we talk about all the time, is having your company ready to take on the funding. And we are going to talk a little bit about what you need operationally, your pitch deck and your marketing plan and whatnot. But we really want to focus on having your company right from a legal perspective, having the right documents in place, having the right agreements executed, having the right plans in place, the right number of shares available, or the right idea on dilution for future rounds or from future rounds. That's what we really want to cover here. So that when you do get to funding, when you when you are ready to take on institutional or serious capital, that you've got all your legal in order. This is something Aaron and I talk about all the time, how often companies, you know, a lot of times we're investor side, right, Aaron, for the funds that we represent, how much cleanup work we have to do, right? Yeah. You know, what, what's the reaction, Aaron, when we get in there and we're leading a, you know, our investors leading a multi-million dollar round and we see that they don't have founder IP agreements done or they don't have a clean cap table for us. Yeah. There are certain things that we can advise our investor clients. Okay. Hey, ideally in a perfect world, they'd have all this buttoned up. There are certain things though that we say, listen, we just can't, we can't let you put your money right. into this company without fixing certain and things. These are deal killers, not right. having your stuff, not having your legal in order. I was at a conference in January and someone asked a VC, what's the number one deal killer in your mind or the biggest red flag? And he said, without question, bad legal. Right. So we want to get that cleaned up because it's really not that hard. And I think a lot of times people, one, they get intimidated by it or two, they think what's really expensive. And you have got to stop thinking about legal as a cost but as an investment. This is an investment in your business. Investing several thousand dollars now, everything Aaron and I are gonna walk you through outside of actually performing the capital raise, but all the founders agreements, the option plans, the cap tables, you're looking at five to $15,000 in legal over time, right? Right. So this is an investment in your business. You can go out and raise millions and millions of dollars or else, you get yourself in a situation where you are now ready to raise a million dollars and you come to us, we say, well, the cost to raise the capital is, you know, I don't know, twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars. But on top of that, all this stuff is a mess and has been ignored, and we gotta go clean this up, and it's gonna add time and expense to the raise. Yeah, chances are when you're coming to us saying, Okay, I'm ready to raise a million dollars, you're ready for that million dollars right then. Right. And if you have legal that needs to be cleaned up, it's gonna add time to that and now all of a sudden you're starting to feel the crunch of you know not having enough cash on hand and all of a sudden it, it's becoming a bigger problem than it is. So take the time early on to get your legal house in order. So we're hoping that for those of you who are clients already and are listening, 
that this is all stuff that's been checked off. If not, please call us because there's probably some documents sitting in your inbox that need to be executed. But for those of you who aren't working with venture attorneys or maybe not work yet working with attorney or are working with an attorney who might not have a venture background, hopefully this will provide some guidelines for you on the sorts of questions you should be asking, the types of documents you should be looking for. You know, a lot of the stuff we're going to talk about is not rocket science. I do think some of the later episodes I want to talk about, Aaron, and we can get into some of the nuances that we've seen just through our experience. But having a good legal foundation does not need to be a uh, you know a huge cost for you. Again, it's a reasonable investment. The same way that you invest in your brand or your logo, your trademark, the same way that you invest in your development team, the same way you should be investing in your accountant, please make this legal investment. I also think that people have a tendency to view lawyers as deal killers. Like our, our sole responsibility or our right. sole goal in a deal is to find something wrong with it and say, no, we can't do that. It's not, like, especially on the investor side. We know that our clients want to make this investment. They've done their financial due diligence. They've looked behind the curtain. They've seen what the company you know, numbers look like. They've just decided, yes, yeah, so we want to invest in this company, and they come to us. I know that my job isn't to find everything wrong with the company to convince my client to not invest. My job is to find what needs to be done in order to make that investment legally sound. And if there's other things that I think need to be done, I, I, I'll make suggestions. Right. Because on, on the on the capital raise side, Aaron, we're just setting everyone up for the next round. Right. Right. We got to get docs ready because what's going to happen is you're doing a million dollar round now. Then if you do a five million dollar round, you're going to have more attorneys, more investors, more people scrutinizing all the legal. Then you do a five million dollar round. Then you're doing a 20 million dollar round. Imagine the scrutiny. I mean, that's when you get auditors coming in. You get consulting firms look at things. So just more and more people looking at until you get to exit. And then when you get to exit, we're not preparing you for the next round. We're trying to make sure that whatever money goes in your pocket never comes back out. Yep. So this is absolutely an investment. All right. So I think the way we've planned this out is we're going to have seven episodes covering different things. Uh, we're going to start today with talking about choosing the right entity type. For you, we're going to talk mostly about LLCs versus corporations. Then we're going to talk about founders agreements. Then we're going to talk about friends and family rounds and the necessary evil that they are. So let's let's uh, let's acknowledge that they exist and the best way to deal with them. Then we're going to talk about getting your pitch deck in order and getting a cap table ready to help you plan for the future. Then we're going to talk about angel rounds. Then we're going to talk about incubators and accelerators. And then we're going to talk about venture financing. So seven working episodes, we might change those as we go, but let's have a discussion now, Aaron, about LLCs versus corporations. So Aaron, a startup comes into our office and let's lump startups and small businesses together for now, all right? They come into your office, they say, hi, I want to talk to someone about forming my entity. I'm not sure if it needs to be an LLC or a corporation. What's the analysis for us? Well, for me, it is, are you wanting to run this business as a lifestyle business where, you know, you'll have, you'll go to the office every day and you work for 20 years and then you retire, or are you going to want to take money from outside? What are some examples of someone coming in here wanting to start a lifestyle business? You want to open a hardware store and you just want to, it's, it's basically businesses that aren't scalable. Mm -hmm. You can't grow it rapidly and then exit. Restaurants. We see a lot of bars and restaurants coming in here. Services businesses. You know, Aaron, small businesses can turn into venture-backed businesses, especially if you're going to franchise or, or grow quickly. But yeah, like Aaron said, a retail business is most likely going to start as a lifestyle business. If you have a dog walking service, not to say you can't put it on an app and gamify it and do all these things, right, that we like to talk about. But typically, 
a lifestyle business is one that you see yourself running for a long time. If you're taking outside capital, it's probably from a bank or some friends, maybe a strategic investor, but you're not generally seeking traditional means of institutional capital. On the flip side, Aaron, if someone comes in and they say they're going to be seeking venture capital, what are some of the hallmarks of their questions or their business idea that would make you think, yes, this is right for venture capital? You know, when they come in and immediately are talking about raising outside money, about compensating employees with equity, about certain milestones that they need to hit in order to be able to go out and raise a, you know, a next round of funding. Which one has a quicker path to profitability generally, a small business or a startup? To profitability, a small business. Yeah, for sure. A startup might have a spreadsheet which shows that they have yeah. one coming, but I think more traditionally, you would expect a small business, a restaurant or Aaron's hardware store to show that they're going to start making money pretty soon. And and I don't think that for a startup, the the goal is to achieve profitability as quickly as possible. I mean, you look at companies like Amazon. Amazon until, what, probably five years ago was operating at a loss. Mm -hmm. They were not profitable. Mm -hmm. But the reason for that is they take all of the revenue that they generate, they put it back into the company, and they go out and take money from outside investors, and they put that into the company. So they're operating at a loss, but they're just growing this company to be a huge behemoth. That's right. You know, A startup might be more focused on market share, customer acquisition, user experiences, uh, the length of time that a user spends interacting with your site or your app, you know, the, the stickiness of whatever it is that you're selling, those sort of things are generally more important. Now, we don't want to ignore profitability at some point in time. It's going to make sense. Right. But I agree with Aaron. And the reason why we're walking you guys through this is because the counsel we're going to give you on what type of entity you need to form is going to be different based on the type of entity that you're forming. Now, we're focusing this thing, I think, Aaron, on more traditional venture capital type companies or startup companies. Let's just briefly cover small businesses. Once someone comes in, Aaron, and they say they want to start a hardware store or a restaurant or bar or a services firm, which entity are we pointing them to? Probably an LLC. Why? It's going to give them sort of the most flexibility in terms of operating the business. It's going to have the benefits of being a pass-through entity. So it's not being double taxed. And what I mean by that is for the most part, an LLC is going to elect to be taxed as a partnership, meaning that the LLC itself does not pay any taxes, but it attributes all of its income or loss to its members, its owners, and then they reflect that share of profit or loss on their personal taxes. In a corporation, the corporation, if you're taxed as a corporation, is a taxable entity. So the corporation pays taxes, then if it distributes money to its shareholders, then the shareholders pay taxes on that. Hence the double taxation. So the LLCs, back to the LLCs, these are pass-through entities. LLCs are relatively new. I think they're only about 25 or 30 years old. And, you know, Delaware was the first That's state old. to push them out. <laughs> it's young. And uh, it, LLCs have become the more common partnership-type entity. Is In regards to the IRS, when you talk to your accountant, you might hear your accountant talk about your partnership. That's because the IRS v views most LLCs as partnerships. And these have primarily replaced limited partnerships as the entity of choice for small businesses. But as Aaron mentioned, they're passed through entities. Very important that you understand how these affect your personal tax returns and you need to visit with your CPA on that. But it's easy to do. They're used all the time. They're super flexible. I agree with Aaron there. You can make them look like an old school limited partnership. You can make them look like a corporation. The 
corporate governance requirements are less. You know, if you scrutinize the statutes, the Delaware statutes or the Texas statutes, uh, Delaware is the uh, Delaware General Corporations Law. Texas is the Texas Business Organizations Code. Corporations have things that are required to be done every year, generally annual meeting minutes and, and consents and whatnot. LLCs, it's good practice to do those things and we 100% advise it. But under the statutes, the requirements aren't quite so burdensome. So another reason why people like and choose LLCs. Also, if you wanted to, for whatever reason, you can tax an LLC just like a corporation. You can tax it like an S corporation. They're just, they're great. They're super flexible. But in the context of a startup, corporations make sense 99 out of 100 times, if not 100 out of 100 times. Now, I want to caveat this and digress quickly because I was not always of this mindset. And Aaron and I had a lot of scholarly debate over it. There used to be an argument for LLCs to make sense in the context of startup because of the double taxation that Aaron described. And we actually have a client of ours that went through a very painful conversion from a corporation to an LLC, not a true conversion. It's very tricky to do, so it's not easy, but just had a nice exit. And they actually were able to realize significant tax benefits from exiting as an LLC. However, it was a very painful process. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars in professional fees, most of those to CPAs or tax lawyers. Three years ago, I was a big proponent of at least considering LLCs for startups. But you know, we discuss this internally. I don't think that's the case anymore. What changed? Probably the biggest thing that changed is the new tax code. Well, and all the headaches that we went through with our well, <laughs> LLC well, startup clients. Yeah. So the biggest thing I think is the new tax code, which lowers the tax rate for corporations. And so now all of a sudden, yes, you're still getting hit with that double taxation, but the hit isn't as bad. I think also we've just seen the headache, especially when it comes to employee equity. There are ways to create employee equity programs within an LLC that have the same sort of feel as an employee stock option plan. But the difference being the tax code doesn't treat options to purchase equity in an LLC the same way that it treats options to purchase equity in a corporation. And so you can't have an incentive stock option plan, but for an LLC, it has to be for a corporation. So you know, there are workarounds which require creating a profits interest plan and there are problems or not problems, but it's it's a headache with profits interest plan because now you have to worry about capital account balances and it becomes and paying them as in, as W-2 right. versus yeah. uh, guaranteed payments as owners. Yeah. Per the IRS rules, you are not allowed to pay somebody that owns equity or owns profit interest in your company. I'd like as to take a minute to complain to the IRS about this. I don't think they're listening. Well, in case they are. I feel that they continually punt on this issue and tax pr practitioners bring this up all the time about how do we treat employee owners inside of LLCs and they just will not do it and they come up with these super complicated regs and then they come up with a comment to the reg or an amendment to the reg. But yes, for those reasons that Aaron is describing, the, the, those headaches coupled with the new tax laws make a corporation the right choice like I said, 99 out of 100 times. Which I think all of the signs point to the IRS trying to say without saying that LLCs are either intended for use as a small business vehicle or as an investment vehicle. So they're sort of a pass-through investment vehicle where you know, you're know you not trying to compensate employees with stock options and you're not going to have people that own equity in the company also employees of the company. So I, I think that they're trying to make that point without just coming out and saying it, which is really frustrating and really hard to read the tea leaves. I agree. I definitely feel like the IRS is pushing 
high growth companies into corporations. Mostly we thought because they were just going to have all the benefit of the additional tax revenue. But with a new tax overhaul, that goes away. So if you're going to be a startup, most likely, very, very most likely, you need to be a corporation. Also, there's the other reason that we're always there, which is institutional investors prefer them so they don't have this pass through this phantom tax issue. They're not being burdened with K-1s and having to file taxes on an LLC. And look, Aaron and I are getting into the weeds here, and this is stuff that's really interesting to us. We could probably have a whole different discussion just on that. But we want you guys to understand LLCs great for small operating lifestyle businesses. Corporations is the preferred vehicle for anyone who's going to have rapid growth. You want to take on a lot of employees and give them stock options. You want to take on capital from institutions, lots and lots of capital from from big, sophisticated institutional investors. Corporation is going to be the preferred vehicle there. So as we get towards the, the end of this, Aaron, let's just talk about, again, since we're talking about both, if someone wants to form an LLC or someone wants to form a corporation, what's the preferred way of doing that or best way of doing that? And what sort of documents are they going to get? So in Texas, both LLCs and corporations, to form an entity, you file a certificate of formation with the Texas Texas Secretary of State. In Delaware, an LLC- It's a certificate of formation. formation, But for a corporation, it's a certificate of incorporation. Let me chime in here. This confuses the heck out of a lot of people because every state calls them something different. It's probably easiest to just think about it as your filing document or your charter. But some states call them articles of organization. Some call them articles of incorporation. Like Aaron mentioned, Delaware calls a corporation a certificate of incorporation, but an LLC formation, a certificate of formation. They're all the same thing. They just briefly list the name of the entity, who the registered agent is, and sometimes who the governing persons are. Now, as a corporation in Delaware or as a corporation in Texas begins to grow and take on different rounds of funding, the certificate of formation or the certificate of incorporation will start to incorporate certain terms from that previous round. With an LLC, the certificate of formation stays the same. You really only change it if you're going to change your name or you're going to it really is a static, very simple, basic document. And then all of the material terms are usually housed in either the company agreement or the operating agreement. You made the point about adding additional terms or amending the certificate of corporation in Delaware or in Texas for a corporation. You know, again, that in Texas is called a certificate of formation. Let's talk about that, Aaron. We talk about funding rounds, right? Yep. And why that's important to have those because why the investors want to have that. So now let's just talk about an LLC. Okay, Aaron, so I'm a Texas LLC. I've got my certificate of formation. How do I file that? And then what else do I need? If you're not going through an attorney, you can file a certificate of formation through the Texas Secretary of State's website. It's pretty easy. They have a lot of useful forms that you can use. And then you just file it through SOS Direct. Or I, I certainly don't want to be promoting companies like LegalZoom or any of those sort of warehouses where they'll form your entity for you for $25. That's not actually what they charge you, but you can always form through there. Keep in mind that once you then engage a lawyer, a lawyer is probably going to want to redo some of those docs. It doesn't mean all the docs are going to be thrown away. It just means we usually want to make sure that we're taking our specific templates and, and crafting them to make sure that we cover the scenarios that we envision for your company. 
Okay, so you've got the certificate of formation done. Then what else are you going to need if you're an LLC? You will probably need unanimous written consent to form the entity. Basically, that just sets out, here's who our managers are. We're authorized to open bank accounts. Here are the officers of the company. Here are the initial members of the company. And here's what do you how mean, much they own. What do you mean when you say unanimous written consent? It's an internal corporate housekeeping document that just sort of says, hey, we are the initial members or the initial managers of this LLC, and we are approving the LLC to go out and basically begin operating. What this is replacing is your initial meeting, right? You know, I want the listeners to understand, rarely, I don't say rarely, but most actions at the corporate level are performed by written consent. Sometimes it's unanimous. Sometimes it's just by majority, depending on what your governing documents require. But to sit around and have to call people to have a meeting, and then there's notice requirements, and then how do I send them notice? Is it email or is it mail? And then what's the quorum? If we went through that every single time we needed to perform some sort of company action, it'd be a very laborious and expensive and time-consuming process. So instead, you have written consents. This initial document Aaron's talking about, the unanimous written consent, it's a great idea to have. It just lays out all the basic actions, the basic initial actions of the company. Okay, Aaron, so we've got our LLC. We've been organized. We've got our unanimous written consent. And then the last document? Company agreement. Company that agreement. That is, it's basically the Bible for your company. That it, exactly it says how your company operates, what you need in order to do X, Y, or Z, who makes decisions for the company. Okay, well, are there certain decisions that the company can't that the managers of the company can't make by themselves. They have to get approval from the members of the company. Okay, well, here's how we're going to handle our taxes. And here's what happens if one of the members gets divorced. Or, you know, it just basically, it tries to envision every different scenario, basically like a choose-your-own-adventure. It's <laughs> like, you know, if this happens, then we do this. Yeah, it's a guidebook. It's your corporate playbook. And this is where the real value of the attorney is because the basic forms that come out of Rocket Lawyer or LegalZoom are probably only going to cover about 30 to 50% of what's going to actually happen with your company. And it's not going to provide for details on how to manage the company, how to remove people. Boy, expulsion one's a huge one yeah. for small businesses. you got to have a way to get rid of people that you're not getting along with. It needs to be fair, but there's got to be a way to get rid of them because otherwise, under Texas law, it's very difficult to do that. So you've got that corporate playbook, you know, the, the forms that you get out of some of the online providers are not that helpful. So that, that's a key reason to go to an attorney. If you're a solo and you just need an entity so that you can go get a, a bank account opened up, and that's another point, you got to go get what's known as your EIN from the IRS. Uh, you file a form SS4. If you just Google IRS EIN, you'll see it. To get your bank account open, you need that EIN, you need your certificate of formation. Maybe the bank might ask for a copy of your written consent that Aaron mentioned and your company agreement, but that's it. And so if you're a solo, I don't have any problem with you run, rolling through LegalZoom. If you've got a partner or co-founder, man, you really got to be um, careful about doing that. And you, know, you want to talk to attorneys sooner than later. So that's on the LLC side. On the corporation side, Aaron, you walk us through what the parallel documents are there? Yeah. For the corporation, you'll file, I'm going to assume that you're in Delaware, you'll file your certificate of incorporation. You'll also have a unanimous written consent. And then you'll have your bylaws. And your bylaws are sort of a, a scaled down version of your company agreement for an LLC, just because your certificate of incorporation is going to have some of the stuff that would be in your company agreement. And so the bylaws and the certificate of incorporation sort of act together as what would be 
the company agreement in Texas. I agree with Aaron there. Bylaws are a watered-down version of company agreement. That's because corporations are going to grow. You're probably going to add a shareholders agreement or other agreements between stockholders and investors at some point in time. So to wrap up, when you're filing your LLC, and this is going to be for a small business that's not planning on rapid growth, that probably is hoping to be profitable sooner than later, then you're going to file a charter in your home state. If you're going to do work in other states, you might have to qualify in those states as well. Talk to your attorney or accountant about that. You're going to file a charter. Texas called Certificate of Formation. Delaware and LLC one's called a Certificate of Formation. You're going to have your uh, your written initial meeting minutes, which is your unanimous written consent, and you're going to have your company agreement. Note that a company agreement is often called an operating agreement in some other states or the regulations of the company. Then if you're a corporation... Flipping to a Delaware example, you're going to file a certificate of incorporation. Again, just a charter there. You're going to have your initial meeting minutes or your unanimous written consent. And then you're going to have your bylaws. And your bylaws are going to set forth how meetings are called, how directors are elected, maybe some basic restrictions on transferability of the shares. All right. I think that sets out what I want to accomplish here, Aaron. Our next one, we'll do this next Monday. We'll release it sometime later next week. We're going to talk about founders agreements and the importance of having all that stuff documented up as soon as possible. So in closing, appreciate you guys listening in. Please send us any questions, feedback, comments, or concerns. You can email us at podcast at VelaWoodLaw.com. Check out our other podcasts. We've got the Venture Deals Review. It's under Office Hours. If you are going to be raising institutional capital ever, you need to read Venture Deals. And then you should listen to our podcast review, Venture Deals Review. Check out our Silicon Valley review. If you're a fan of the show, that'll start back up here in a few months. And Aaron and I will do a weekly review there. And then our Three Things podcast, which is where we discuss or interview people in our space. For this particular show, you can find show notes on our blog at VelaWoodLaw.com or in the link in the iTunes episode description. Please follow us on Twitter at VelaWoodLaw or Instagram at VelaWood. And finally, most importantly, rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes under the Office Hours podcast. Five stars only. Five stars only. Thank you. The Velawood podcasts are recorded in our Dallas office in Mockingbird Station. You can find all of our podcasts, including Office Hours, Three Things, and Silicon Valley Review on the iTunes Store. For questions, comments, or suggestions, email us at podcasts at